1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: I honestly believe this is deliberate and it's sort of one of the reasons I find him really fascinating as a political figure. He's sort of he the more you the more you look the less you see almost it's sort of like he deliberately absents himself from the from the transaction it's like he doesn't want a blockage between what voters might want to project upon him as a prime ministerial figure i think
1: Hello,
0: lovely people of podcasts, and welcome. Today, just for something a bit different, we're flipping the normal script. On this episode of Australian Politics Live, we're interviewing, hmm, wait for it, me. And David Marr will be the guest uh, host for this particular episode. Uh, I've recently spent several months, well, really since the start of this year, February, March, April, uh, I've been writing, as well as my normal day job, at a Guardian Australia, I've been doing a quarterly essay about uh, Australia's Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, and also about the, how the governments of the country, well, both the Prime Minister and the governments of the country, handled the first wave of the coronavirus. It uh, combines a, a, a sort of journalist's narrative of events, key events, during the first phase of proceedings and it allows the key protagonists to narrate the stories really in their own words and there is also a a profile of Scott Morrison and his politics viewed through the lens of the pandemic. Uh, I'm doing some events around the quarterly essay, uh, some all in conversations and for this particular one, the lovely David Ma, my dear colleague interviewed me about the process of writing this quarterly essay, what I learned about the Prime Minister and uh, we recorded that conversation for you all to hear. Here we go. But
1: this essay to me is a compelling example of here is something we're so familiar with we can almost barely not listen on the news to get more about it but it is finding the narrative makes sense of the events and to talk as you've done to, to principal players and how they came to their first decisions and there's this wonderful sense I think you were aiming for of However much we know about the pandemic now, we have to remember that the big decisions were made quite largely on guesswork.
2: Yes, yes, yes. And that was, that was really... Yeah, hunch. And I, I say in the piece that strangely it would have been so easy to miss this event, even though it now looms so large in our lives we've almost forgotten what it's like to, to not be in it. Right at the start, given where Morrison was at, he was coming out of the tail end of the bushfires, which he obviously mishandled in full public view. Spectacularly. Uh, when, spectacularly, when When Parliament resumed, it resumed with this thunderclap where the Nationals just had a giant tantrum and sort of all stormed at their leader, Michael McCormick, to no result. Morrison was also in the middle of the sports grants fiasco. This was a seriously busy extended guy and extended government, and they could have quite easily missed the onset of this pandemic, but they didn't. But as you say, David, it's not like there are a set of rules or a set of perfect information that one can apply in these circumstances you get all the inputs but at the end of the day you have to make decisions based on imperfect information and morrison references this in his conversation with me in the essay that this is this is a genuine difficulty and and but that's at the core of government it is the art of making decisions with imperfect information
1: It's at the core of leadership too, isn't it? Because one of the great qualities of a leader. Yeah. And I think it's one that's overlooked. In so many profiles, biographies of of current leaders, this knack for judgment, which can't really be sourced or analysed or dissected, but do you have judgment? Mm. But do you come away from the sight of Morrison in action mm.
2: convinced this man has judgment? I think he, uh, well, it's it's variable. It is it's actually variable, but I think he does have very sharp instincts. If which is sort of what you said a minute ago that it's that the decisions are partly instinct. Uh, I think he does have quite sharp instincts although he doesn't get it right all the time I think what enabled them to make better judgments in this crisis at at particularly at the start was the benefit of the bushfires there's uh, there's a piece in the in the essay there's a reflection from christian Porter where he said that the cabinet because of the mishandling of the bushfires, there was this hypervigilance in the Cabinet about not making that error again, not finding themselves stranded by a major event and unable to position themselves in it. And so I think they were assisted by having... Mishandled the first federated crisis, of and they year. weren't going to make
1: that same mistake.
2: They weren't going to make that same mistake, and perhaps, the, you know, I guess, it's all a question of emphasis, isn't it? I mean, you know, perhaps in the rush to not make that same mistake, may have resulted in over in this crisis compared to the first. But uh, I think yeah, it's kind of multifactorial. Morrison's got good instincts. Often he has good judgment, but not always. And I think the people around him uh, were, as let's just give it to Porter, were hyper vigilant after the bushfires and, and absolutely determined that whatever this new thing was, that it, wouldn't, that it wasn't
1: going to be a cocker. Can I contrast the two crises and suggest? that for the bushfires, one of the problems, one of the political problems for the government was the verdict to be experts. Mm. But in this crisis, in the coronavirus crisis, there was no political downside to listening to the experts. Yes,
2: yes, yes. Well, that's exactly right because the expert advice or, well, the, the, the subject that the Prime Minister couldn't broach In the first crisis, was of course climate change, and that that (laughs) that was part of what sort of rendered he had this strange paralysis during the bushfires. It was more than climate, but climate was at the root of it. It was sort of it was obviously a subject that couldn't be ignored, but he had no language for how one could speak about climate change safely without being immediately yes. set on by by the colleagues right so that was that was certainly part of it climate definitely and experts you're right experts in the first fraught experts in the second easier because obviously the liberal party hasn't had a civil war over epidemiology or at least not yet, not yet. So, so so you're right that there was a clearer pathway to accepting expertise in the second, than in the first, but it was also it was also I think learning in a different way from the bushfires again. Part of Morrison's problem in the bushfires, apart from the fact that he couldn't speak about climate change without being beset by mad people, was that there was nothing to do in his head, right? That yes. the premiers the premiers are responsible for emergency management. They send out the fire trucks. They they do all that bizau. And he
1: um, can't himself hold fire he
2: can't, And he can as he said famously, I don't hold I don't hold a hose mate, right? So the Prime Minister was kind of a bit bereft because he is a doer. That is that is how he that 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 is his political personality. So when the second federated crisis came around, which was the pandemic, I think he really resolved that he would not be in this sort of semi-impotent position again, that he would create a governance structure that, that literally put him in the centre of the action, that, that appointed him the Prime Minister of the Premiers, and that's what happened. They created this emergency government of nine, right? And again, that that was part of him learning from the first experience, that that he was not going to be in a position again where the states would have all of the control of the issue and and he would be rendered a bystander and an awkward bystander to boot.
1: And by listening to the experts and setting up a national structure for, for addressing this crisis, Australians saw perhaps something quite unfamiliar to them, which was a government taking effective action and putting aside at least for a time partisan playground fights. Yep. And getting on with it effectively. Yes. And this is not something I remember seeing in Australia for a very long time.
2: No, exactly. It, it was it, and that's why I, this is getting back to that point about recording the history. Why not just do a profile of Morrison why delve into the the most overreported event of the century? Well, because important things happened in those months, really important things happened, and they, they, they created or there was this wonderful rapprochement that happened between a political class that had shown every sign over the last decade of being dysfunctional, busted ass, right, this, our yes. political class, right, not to put too fine a point on it. We had this event... Where governments rallied, they they set they, they set down the tribalism for a period of time. They looked at evidence. They worked methodically through the evidence to all well, solutions. They prevented. They presented to the Australian people as broadly competent. Astonishing. Who knew? Um, <laughs> collab- collaborative, right? Collaborative. Yep. Willing um, to admit
1: mistakes.
2: Willing to admit mistakes. Like this was a very profound thing that happened in our in our collective experience. And one of the really fascinating things that we tracked at The Guardian because we we run the essential poll data, and during the the crisis we ran a poll every week. And we, I actually saw it come back. I saw trust come back. Yes.
1: Uh, I mean, trust in government is this extraordinary thing as as we know, that collapsed under Kevin Rudd, yeah. um, collapsed when he turned away from doing anything effective about global warming. Yep. Yeah. And here yeah. we have this crisis, government acting. Do you think it was a time when suddenly people, I mean, I know it was true of me, started to think, well, if government in this country can actually do something, <laughs> then maybe it could do something about it. And a long list of things which, in the last decade, governments have studiously refused to do anything about.
2: Yes. Well, wouldn't that be marvellous
1: if that happened? Wouldn't that be marvellous? Global warming would go back on that list. But it seems to me that you capture this beautiful moment in the quarterly essay when there seems to have been a profound shift in Australian government and trust. But... Do you sense that it's going to last?
2: Mm, um, so I would love to. Uh, I would. I would love to be uh, ebullient about this. I would love to be brimming with optimism because God knows we could. We could use some optimism. Um, but uh, sadly, already I think we uh, we're seeing reversions to type all around the place. We've sort of reached a point in the crisis where. Uh, where we are reverting to to business as usual. We've seen this particularly over the last month or so in this sort of proxy war, then actual war between Scott Morrison and Daniel Andrews, the most interesting relationship in the Federation, and uh, The Prime Minister tells me in the essay, the key fusion in the Federation, sadly the key fusion is looking a a little bit unfused at this point in time, but it's sort of not just as simple as Daniel Andrews and Scott Morrison have have fallen out and now it's toys out out of the cot and and it's all kind of horrendous again. I think the problem is, I guess one of the implicit questions in the essay is how long can a prime minister set down ideology? How long can that happen? How long can the leader of an established major party set down ideology in favour of practical problem solving? That's the key question for me. And and (laughs) the, the evidence suggests possibly not for that long. You see Morrison now starting to be sort of buffeted by a whole bunch of cross currents. There's the dynamic in the government where where the government is now asserting to the prime minister you are not the prime minister of the premiers you are the prime minister of of us the liberal yes. and national parties and we have a bunch of views about what does or does not happen in a crisis and who might be to blame in the event that everything goes pear shaped ie not us it's that daniel andrews that needs to yes. wear the lion's share of the blame so you see that happening you also see normal election cycles, because obviously we've got to run a state elections coming up. Queensland, in the, and, and we've had one in the Northern Territory, we're having one in the ACT, where state premiers are also playing to their own constituencies and, and are being pulled away from this government of national unity because sort of partisan weight is coming to bear on them as well. So
1: it, so when does, when, when does the Guardian next poll trust?
2: Ah, uh, well, that's, uh, well, funny, funny you may say that, David. You, you know, if people read The Guardian tomorrow, they may see some new figures about <laughs> oh, it. Um, ladies
1: and gentlemen, I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Um, Catherine, I don't want to be personal, but how many prime ministers have you reported? Oh.
2: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, yes, let's bring my age into this. No, uh, not, did, I, no, I started. I'm, talking, I'm like, just going to your expertise, no, not yours. Sure. No, 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 no. I'm not at all. I'm not, at all, I'm not at all. I'm not at all offended by my age. No, um, uh, I, ha- uh, I had two weeks of Paul Keating when I started as a very baby journalist. I literally turned up in the last two weeks of Paul Keating before that election. So I have had. So everybody that. from then... Yes, I've had John Howard through to the current bloke.
1: Is yeah. this man the hardest to read of all of those men and women? Yeah, by a considerable margin. Why?
2: Partly because I, I do borrow from Gertrude Stein in the piece, and I say there's no there there. It is. Um, it, it's partly because he is at his core this this hybrid of a prime minister and a campaign director. Which is, which is not what we've had in the Prime Ministership in Australia in my reporting lifetime. It's partly because yeah, they, you cannot identify, or at least I can't. I'll, I'll be fascinated if anyone in the audience can, and I devoted quite a lot of thinking to this as I was writing the piece. I tried to identify that the hill Scott Morrison would die on politically. Yes. And you could, for all of the previous prime ministers, I can identify a hill. For, for, this, for this fellow, I can't. Now, because, you know, the way he comes at politics is not from the point of view that the Liberal Party has a set of values that I am a custodian of and I will project to Australian voters. Scott Morrison believes in, I guess he, he's a populist at heart. He he thinks th- the age of politicians imposing their values on the community in, in this sort of grand narrative about reform, uh, he thinks that's done. He, he, do, he, he does not think yes. that that can happen anymore. Therefore, uh, governing now in 2020 uh, is about understanding the problems the public wants solved and getting about solving those problems. Now that's
1: Except, not just of course, for the problem of having in your own party an ideological block that does not want a number of those problems solved.
2: No, well this is this is the intriguing thing uh, that obviously, in sort of presenting this picture of Scott Morrison as this kind of Uber pragmatist, I don't want to convey to people that I think that he's not partisan because he is. He's, absolute, he's blue team to the core, this guy. I also don't want to suggest that he is entirely devoid of ideology because we can see it across the pandemic response as well as on the issues that you correctly identified the Liberal Party has trouble talking about, right? But I just think left to his own devices, the prime minister is a problem solver not not someone who is sort of brimming with any particular ideology so that that makes him different it's, he is he is yeah he he is different from all of his predecessors in that
1: respect but i suggest there's another thing that makes him different which is that there's no kind of story of morrison
2: mm-hmm. there
1: was a story of keating and a story of of Howard and, you know, suburban solicitor. There was a story, God knows, of Kevin Rudd, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the, the Mandarin scholar who's come down from the from the north to be our, you know, to be our leader. There mm-hmm. was definitely a story about Gillard and Abbott is all story and no achievement. Yeah, he is all but there's, story. There's this curious lack of story about this man. Yes, but this,
2: but this is deliberate. I honestly believe this is deliberate and it's sort of one of the reasons I find him... Really fascinating as a political figure he sort of he the more you the more you look the less you see almost it's it, he has this reflective quality it's sort of like he he sort of deliberately absents himself from the from the transaction it's like you know what what people see as a manifestation of their own Desires in a way. It's uh, like I know this probably sounds insane to people listening, but but I honestly believe this to be true. And he tamps down the story. See, he, he sort of dialed up his own story during the election campaign. David, we had a little bit of a, a, we a saw into
1: church, for instance,
2: Yes, really exactly. Yes, we saw into his church. We saw this sort of avuncular suburban dad type product that that Jen and the that, girls and Jen and the girls. We saw a bit of that. But again, it's sort of, it's very, it's very recessed. He doesn't, he doesn't want a blockage between the voters and and what voters might want to project upon him as a prime ministerial figure, I think. What do you believe? Oh, well, I wish, I wish he, I wish he'd engaged. I don't know. Maybe I'm terrifying. I don't know. Um, I really, I, re- I really, there's a there's a piece anyway for folks who haven't read the essay yet. There is a piece about Morrison and his faith, because I wanted to go there because, in part, as a counterpoise to this idea that I was presenting this prime minister, who was that the, there was no there there that yeah. a, a pragmatist, yes. a person devoid of convictions, because that's not right. Uh, the the prime minister believes in God. His faith is very very important to him it connects him to the people who he is closest to it forms a community and a hinterland for him and also a connection point with some voters so i wanted to engage him on what his on on what faith is for him i grew up in in the catholic church and <laughs> faith was faith was about suffering and doubt, right? Um, Scott Morrison, to me, he's obviously grown up in a Pentecostal tradition, which is not not my world. I don't I don't understand Pentecostal traditions, not having grown up in one. I suspect he's very certain about his faith. I suspect he's very literal in his beliefs, and I I, I wanted to draw him out, not uh, not as some exercise and entrapment, because faith is so important to this man. And if we understand more about Scott Morrison's faith, I think we'll understand more about our Prime Minister and the way he sees the world and the way he processes information. Uh, We had a very cordial conversation for this essay and he gave me some generalities about faith, Mm. Um, but he did not want to engage on on this question at all. He said to me, I can't remember the exact phrase, but it was something like, I don't parade it or I don't make a... Yeah.
1: a but you have to a, say that. You, I mean, the, the last person, I'm, it's interesting, isn't it, that of the last three or four Prime Ministers we've had, faith has been this very big issue for them. Yeah. A huge issue with Kevin Rudd. Remember his press conferences he would hold? Outside the outside, church. Outside the church on Sunday? Yes. Outside the Lichgate of St John's? Yes. Um, yes,
2: indeed, yes.
1: And, and then Tony Abbott, of course, Mr Faith.
2: Very, very, yes. That Well, that, that, <laughs> that faith I recognised.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's the one you... So we had the Anglicans, we've had the Catholics, now we've got the yes. Pentecostals. Yes, um, yes. Can I take you to task for something I think you do which is really cruel, and that is approach the Prime Minister with respect and... I think that the damage you do to this man by being quiet, respectful, and attentive to him, not shouting, not raging about him, but analysing who he is and how he operates, is damage that perhaps will never be repaired. Oh, um, <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think that's an overstatement. I do, uh, I do, um, I do approach him quietly, and I approach him in the way that he approaches. The world, which is in an, a highly attuned and observant way. One thing you wouldn't know about Scott Morrison if you just get the glimpses uh, you get the packages on the television is is how attentive this guy is, uh, how how yeah, a, that point He's a watcher. He is absolutely a watcher and he can read a room. not all not all politicians can, but he is very attentive in my experience anyway, of of his surroundings. He, he makes judgments very quickly, very intuitively. I say at one point in the essay, it's sort of like I wonder whether it's the policeman's gaze uh, or the son of the policeman's gaze. His father, John, was a policeman, a New South Wales policeman, before he was a local councillor later in life. And I speculate at one point whether this is this is the policeman's gaze that's been sort of modelled to the sun, that you, you've got to learn very quickly what side of the line your opponent is on, whether they're on your side or another side. I, look, I don't know. It's a bit of whimsy, really. But, uh, look, yeah, I would prefer to phrase it in, in that way, David, that I yeah. approached the Prime Minister in the way that the Prime Minister I approaches liked the
1: world. I liked it very much. I liked, I liked the quiet of it very much because it allowed us to, to look to the detail and see the man clearly. He's a great. One of his great skills, I think. I don't know what you think of this. Is not answering the question. He's a phenomenal <laughs> non-answerer. Oh God!
2: Yes, it's well. It's very. Uh, it's very taxing for us who who are showing up every day in Canberra. He's a he. He doesn't mind questions being asked. He just minds answering them. Yes, um, yes. That's, 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 we find this again and again. Although he can sort of sometimes confound you and and, and answer a question, but mostly not. And particularly, you know, there's, uh, he, his, if, he, if he doesn't want to answer, you're not getting an answer. It wouldn't matter if you, you know sort of set your hair on fire or whatever performance you put on you're not getting an answer it's just it's just blank today i gather i wasn't in the office today but my dear colleague paul carp who has been relentless and wonderful on the sports grant story yes and has been attempting to uh, get a question up in a press conference the last couple of press conferences about the latest information in relation to sports grants i gather the prime minister turned on his heel and left so And, and he, he has shut me down in press conferences in the past. So He's yeah, he shut doesn't... me down. <laughs> so if he doesn't want to answer, it's, it's very difficult to, to get an answer. I mean, he's not Robinson Crusoe there, of course, as a political figure, but he, uh, he certainly won't answer a question that he doesn't want to answer.
1: Is it time for journalists to start to work together to compel answers? And when one journalist is fobbed off, instead of the next journalist going on to some other issue, mm. just, it's is it, happened once or twice in the White House press room, and it's enormously powerful, but it seems not to happen here.
2: Yeah. It, look, it does every now and again. I, I can remember in one instance asking, it was, it was during one of the asylum policy debates. Oh, it was a Medivac. It was about the Medivac legislation. I asked the the Prime Minister said something that wasn't factual. And uh mm-hmm. and well, just wasn't wasn't yes, wasn't true. And I I pulled him up on it and he didn't, you know, he, he became quite frustrated obviously with the dynamic and I thought, oh well that'll be that. But a couple of my colleagues, David Spears and someone else, picked up immediately afterwards and, and pursued it. And I was really grateful for that because I wasn't Intending to make a scene, I just didn't. I just don't think it's right if prime ministers aren't factual in their answers. Yeah. So, uh, but you're right. It happens. It happens more infrequently than it should. I don't really know why. I think probably because there's a bit of a mindset that may have developed from the days where press conferences were not all that frequent. We're in a we're in some strange circumstances at the yes. moment where all the time. They, they are now happening all the time, but I think possibly the mentality sort of extends to the pre-pandemic era where Prime Ministers may not appear that frequently. So if you've got a question to answer, you've got one you've got to shot you got grab at, that opportunity. Right? You've got to grab it. So I, I don't know, I haven't thought about this deeply, but I suspect possibly there's a bit of that in, in this rather than just sort of being obtuse or failing to assist colleagues in need, I think possibly we we journalists can get a little bit obsessive in our focus and are not always that attentive Look, to the dynamics around us. Putting it so nice. perhaps. Catherine, perhaps.
1: One of the little doors, one of the, the quiet, sorry, not little, but one of the quiet doors you opened for me in this essay was the observation that this man doesn't really like Parliament.
2: Mm. Yeah, it really doesn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Really
1: doesn't. Explain. Explain. Yes.
2: Well, it's sort of fascinating again because it does mark him out from other prime ministers. I don't think Kevin Rudd loved parliament, to be frank. I don't think no. he hated it, but I don't think he loved it either, to be honest. I think Julia Gillard did. I never detected any sort of particular derision on Malcolm Turnbull's part about parliament. Keating, well, obviously, Howard, well, obviously, it's sort of, you know, what gets them out of bed in the morning, that whole kind of bare pet theatrics. And it's kind of fascinating about Morrison because he is, you know, he's, he's, he's quite, he's obviously a very forceful guy, right? He is, yes. he is that forceful person. He's a forceful he's not,
1: presence in Parliament.
2: He is. And it's not like he doesn't, you know, it's not like he sort of avoids conflict so so it's genuinely strange I think it's just that the Prime Minister does not like constraints he likes to be able to set his own agenda on his own terms he likes latitude he likes he likes room to move and and Parliament is just gravity Parliament is it, it imposes weights on prime ministers there are there are rituals in the day that, that that burn up time. Time you could be doing something else. You've got to sit there and prep for question time, and and the whole kind of the, the the perform the performative element of the chambers. It's just it is all gravity, and this prime minister is always packed for flight.
1: Yes, and he can't just turn on his heel and leave question time if things well, get off. Yeah
2: well you can't it's sort of you've you've just got to endure that and and look he is uh you know i don't know if this comes out in the essay or not he's he has a ferocious work ethic he is a very hard worker and so it's not it's not that uh you know doesn't like the work i think he doesn't like the constraint and there's no there is no easy departure as you say it's not like if you if you just had enough of this, if you you really don't want the 38th question on aged care or whatever it is. Sports or? Sports, whatever. You you can't just nick off or change the subject. You're there and you've got to possess yourself with the patience in order to get through those moments. And, uh, you know, and I, I don't think he enjoys it particularly much.
1: A question has come in from one of our viewers, which I think is a wonderful question. Great. Which is, to what extent this man is like Trump?
2: Okay. Um, yes. Well, I, I, I say in the essay that uh, I have seen with my own eyes, I have seen the Prime Minister try on a Trump suit. I've seen him pop it on, go for a little wander about in it, see yeah, if that it works. Crutch. Uh, yes. Cuffs. All the, all yeah. the bizzo. Uh, and, and I've seen him take it off again because I don't think he thinks that really does work in the Australian context. I think there are some elements of Trumpism uh, that, that you can see in Morrison's approach and instincts. Uh, I do think, and there is there is a section in the essay about Morrison kind of sort of fiddling with the dials on sovereignty and on nationalism and on, on sovereign capability and on Australian exceptionalism, which is, is mildly trump A bit of a uh, sniff of Trump, yes. A little, yes. There's, he's, I, I, I think I say in the essay that he tried on the Trump suit, he took it off. I think it's still in the wardrobe, the Trump suit. I don't think it's been sent to the cleaners or to the tip. I think it's in the wardrobe still. It may be, it, it could be called upon, but I think his judgment, his, his sort of judgments about how one does a version of authoritarian populism in the Australian context are some of the more interesting manifestations of his own prime ministership. He's still working out a language for all of that stuff. He doesn't want to be a carbon copy of Trump. He really doesn't, genuinely. I don't think he does. Uh, I think he wants to be his own thing. And, in fact, do you, you guys listening on may remember um the, the treasurer somewhat rashly at the press club a couple of weeks ago mentioned that his heroes were Thatcher and, oh, yes. and Reagan and the prime minister got quite annoyed by that that one would be looking to warhorses of the of the past to articulate one's philosophy and he uh, and, and rarely because he and Josh Frydenberg, I think have genuinely have a good relationship and get on well Uh, The the Treasurer was rebuked, in fact, by the Prime Minister for for this thought crime. So it's kind of like I think the the short answer, sorry, a bit of raving, the short answer to the Trump question is he's tried on the suit, it's in the wardrobe, it hasn't gone away yet, but I don't think he's Trump. Genuinely, I don't think he's Trump. And I think in some respects he's quite different.
1: That suggests to me that this is a country in which truth has a bit more traction still than in the United States.
2: Well, look, God, help us, David. I mean, seriously, look at America. Look at it. It's sort of, it's so terrible. It is so terrible, Uh, that kind of, that, that, that coarsening, that polarisation. It is terrifying. It is absolutely terrifying. You know, the greatest, one of the greatest countries in the world is, is uh, in the most horrendous tailspin at this point in time. And we in, Amer- we in Australia think, well, we import some of those, well, we import the culture wars, we import the sort of media climate, we import many things from America, but we are not America. Thank God we're not. And uh, and I think we as a society let's let's need to really double down on this idea and resist this sort of coarsening polarisation of people, uh, people proposing things in order to fight about them rather than resolve them. We absolutely need to resist this with every fibre of our small Australian beings.
1: Thanks, Catherine, very much.
0: Well, thank you so very much for listening. Uh, this I just want to be clear, this conversation between David and myself was originally recorded uh, from an event that the Melbourne Bookshop Readings set up for us. They are fabulous people at Readings. We've also put up a link to uh, the, on on our podcast page to where you can find other conversations uh, that readings have hosted. With authors, people like Melissa Davey, my colleague from Guardian Australia, Miranda Tapsell, Virginia Trioli, and many, many more. Check that out. We'll be back with you next week. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts?